Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. Leslie, a member of our community, is joining me again today I spoke with her last week, so if you didn't listen to that episode, listen to that first and then join us here. We're just going to jump right in. I know this is painful to talk about. You talked about like being over many of your triggers, but let's talk about him targeting you, knowing that you were successful and knowing that you would be a provider and essentially just grooming you in order to be able to use you. Can you talk about not knowing that that was happening and perhaps now like how you're processing that? That has been one of my biggest challenges because being successful, being a helper, a doer, I did a lot of medical relief work pre-COVID and he ended up kind of piggybacking or riding my coattails on a lot of my trips. I would go on these trips and I maybe would have five photos the whole time I was there because I'm there to work. You know, I'm there to help. I'm there doing medical relief work. He would have thousands of photos all over social media about what a wonderful thing he was doing and him and him and him and him. And I remember early on in our relationship saying to him, what are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What are your goals? And I accomplished two more degrees when I was with him. I always would say, you know, don't you have a dream? Don't you have an aspiration? What do you want to do? I said, you can't always ride on my coattails. I have my own dreams, my own aspirations of what I want to do with my life. You, You should have your own and then we should have together goals. And that was a really hard thing for me to wrap my brain around that somebody would not have goals or not have the same drive and ambition that I had. So looking back and seeing how much he groomed and took from me um, and my brother said this a few months ago, and I know he didn't mean to say it. And I've, I've learned to not take things as personally when people say things, because people sometimes just don't know what to say. They don't mean to say things the way they were, they come out, but um, they were friends. And I think they're loosely still friendly. We kind of don't talk about it. And 
they used to go snowmobiling together and my brother went up on a, on a yearly trip and all the guys, I guess, asked where my ex was. And he said, well, he's not a kept man anymore. He said, my sister got smart to his, his ways and he's not a kept man anymore, which kind of stung a little bit to me because I was like, that is exactly what he was. He had his cake and he could eat it too. Who wouldn't want that? He had the really nice house on the lake. He had all the toys. He got to travel the world and he still got to screw around on the side. <laughs> so, you know, who wouldn't want a life like that? So what he wasn't looking for, which is so painful to recognize in hindsight, was a true partnership. Correct. All of his behaviors were intent on grooming you to think that in order to be able to use you for finances, for travel, for also prestige. Like he's the husband of this like really great, amazing, successful woman, but he didn't want to be your partner. 100%. And I think that was a really hard pill for me to swallow when I finally kind of realized that, that this was not a partnership in any form whatsoever. And when you started going to therapy, like right at the very beginning, before you were even married, did the therapist not tip you off to this or I anything? I think she did. And then when we had been married for a year, we moved to the west side of the state of Michigan away from his family. Because honestly, if we didn't, we probably would have never stayed married as long as we did. When we moved to the west side, I had started seeing a new therapist and she is amazing. And she called me right out on it almost immediately, you know, and she's like, you do realize like he is a narcissist that he's using you that this is abuse. I would always have excuses. And she was very blunt. And she'd be like, No, I'm telling you. And then when I stopped seeing her, because we kind of went down the whole sexual addiction road. So then I got my own CSAT. When I finally got out of that, I ended up going back to my original one. And I had a final session with my CSAT. And she said, you know, why are you stopping seeing me? And I don't mind because I just am wondering. And, and I said, because the reason that I'm seeing you no longer exists. I said, I don't need to see you anymore because this isn't a CSAT matter. Yeah. The interesting thing was it was never a CSAT matter. No, you're right. And the unfortunate thing is the CSAT didn't tell you that. Right. Because they do not see it as abuse. And I think that they are clinically negligent. Although I will say I have the utmost respect. We were recommended to a counselor who is a CSAT counselor who only sees married couples, you know, for couple therapy. So he would have his, I'd have mine. And then we were going to see this couple one. We went to him the first time. And at the end of it, he looked at us and goes, I don't think I can help you guys. And I was so blown away. I go, what do you mean? I said, he just spent all this money on this program. You know, he, he's quote unquote, checking the boxes, da, da, da. He goes, no, he's not. He goes, I see all the things he's not doing. And you want me to tell you to trust him when he's not trustworthy. He goes, I can't do that. And I will not take your money. I have the utmost respect for him because the fact that he saw, I mean, he could have just kept taking our money and kept on saying, oh yeah, I can fix you guys. This is fine. He did say, 
I want to have one individual session with each of you. And then I'll make my final decision. And even in my first session with him, he was like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, really? You know, it's funny, like Michigan is known for being very, can be very turbulent. And he goes, you know, they put those red flags out in the middle of the lake when they tell you not to go swimming. You saw all those red flags and you still went swimming. (laughs) Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. Well, and it's not because you're stupid. It's because you didn't know how to process the red flag. So as you saw the red flag to you, it said, okay, he's got childhood trauma. He needs therapy. Exactly. It didn't say red flag abuser. You saw porn on his phone, red flag. Maybe he's a sex addict. It didn't say red flag abuser. Right. That's the other issue is that women might be seeing the red flags fine, but they don't know how to process it or define it. And they're trying to be good, nice people. We know people aren't perfect. We know um, that we can't expect people to be perfect. I don't think we're missing the red flags. I just think we're processing them incorrectly. And most addiction or just regular average therapy would say, work on communication, connect with them. You know, there's there's so much misinformation. In an abuse scenario, which at BTR, we see porn use as abusive, right? So in an abuse scenario, they should never be doing couple therapy, ever, 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 ever. So I think, like, in my opinion, CSATs who do couple therapy are clinically negligent. Uh, I would agree. you've got an abuser and you should not be doing ever, ever couple therapy with an abuser. So it's like uh, an oxymoron sort of, but they don't see it that way because they don't see it as abuse. So it sounds like you had a few therapists that were awesome. So so let's actually focus on that for just a minute. Your original therapist that told you, hey, this is abuse, and then you went to a CSAT. Talk about what happened. How did he use that manufactured relational tether at that point? Maybe you went home and said, hey, she said you were abusive or something, or maybe you didn't, but how did he reel you back in in order to go down the sex addiction recovery route after she kind of pointed out the abuse? Like, talk about your thought process or how he manipulated you after that. You probably are familiar with the Gottman, Uh you know, the whole Gottman thing in regards to marital therapy. So our initial therapist would use Gottman stuff with us. When we talk about Gottman, this is classic couple therapy stuff that does not account for abuse. Exactly. Exactly. He would use the tools that we would get in therapy as weapons against me. And he would say, but this is what the counselor said. And you're not doing this. And you're not doing that. I'm trying to take a break, but it would always be, they get in your face, that whole reactive abuse. So we also don't use the word reactive abuse here at BTR. The reason I want to pause there, people have said this, they say something and then you react in a way that is maybe you yell or I don't know, whatever. Uncharacteristic. Yes. And at BTR, we just see that as trying to defend yourself. Right. That's it. 
you're not abusing them reactively or anything like that. You're literally being hit in the head and you are trying to defend yourself. And that's it. Because I do not want victims labeled as also abusers in trying to defend themselves from abuse. That's what the abuser wants. He wants to see it as sort of like, well, we both have problems and we're both unhealthy when really it needs to be viewed as you've got an abuser and then you have a victim who's trying to survive. And that's exactly what I was trying to do. And he would use all of those therapy things as weapons back against me. I thought I was going crazy so many times. Do you feel like you are spinning in circles? You're hopeless. You get to a point where you just don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do anymore. So my guess is he's escalating at this point because he's losing control. So when he's in treatment, he knows that you've got the time and the space to sort of clear out the fog and they can't manipulate you when they're not in constant contact with you. Right. So my guess is at this point, he's kind of freaking out. He's not, he's not into the treatment at all, but he's, he's trying to act like he is to groom you, but realizing you have space. So at this point where you have space, you're finally able to kind of like get your wits about you because so many women are trying to sort it out while still literally being daily manipulated and lied to and they're still really deep in the fog so talk about how that space helped the fog clear a little bit and helped you see clearly the space was key it probably took me a good six weeks before I finally started to see things as they were and the reactions that he would have when we would have interactions we had been separated for three months and we weren't really doing any couple counseling. He ended up getting fired from work for sexual inappropriateness. And, but he did get his job back. But right then is when he was going to go to away to treatment. And when the day after he left for treatment, I had come home that night, the following night, and all three of my kids were at my house. And my kids are grown. They're adults. And I thought, okay, what is going on? Like, this was not a planned family thing. My daughter lives three hours away. Like, why is she here? And so when I walked in, I said, what is going on? And apparently one of my children had found out that he had been fired for sexual inappropriate things and had found that he had been stalking younger women I had already spoke with an attorney prior, but it was the following day that I ended up going through and filing while he was away at treatment. One of the things that I recommend that victims don't do, which is crazy hard to do, I find that that all of us sort of needed to do this, which I wish there was some way to circumvent it, but I'm not sure if there is is when you find out about the abuse or some of the behaviors, our, our natural reaction is to tell the abuser this. Right. Right. To say, hey, I just found out I have an STD. What happened? Or, hey, I know I just found porn on your phone. And I wish that instead of talking to the abuser and trying to like help him see the situation or anything like that, that they would just start taking steps back and start getting to safety Because every time we confront the abuser or try to like help him understand the situation, we just get more abused. Similarly, you were more abused through all the therapy because he started weaponizing all the therapy language. 
once this happened and you contacted a lawyer, did you try to talk to him about what had happened or anything after that? And did you have that experience where in trying to say, hey, look, I'm going to get divorced because you did that set you up for more abuse? It did in a certain aspect, but we were not living together at the time. So I still could keep that distance. I will say before he left for treatment, I had had enough wits about me that I had, I had contacted an attorney a prior and had a postnuptial agreement drawn up that I made him sign that if he wanted to stay married or to quote unquote, save the marriage, that he needed to sign it. And he did sign it. And that was my only saving grace because it basically just said, you are not entitled to, you know, you leave with what you came with. I leave with what I came with. You're not entitled to any spousal support, X, Y, and Z. And that was the only thing I can say that I was able to have my wits about me, that I was able to walk away and not get totally for lack of better words, screwed over in the end. (laughs) We're going to pause the conversation here. Please join us again next week where Leslie and I finish up our conversation. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon, and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on Support the BTR Podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.